The comments, opinions and statements made in this audio recording are those alone of the individual who expressed them and in no way represent the stance opinion or endorsement of the Uninformed Voters podcast, any other guest, commercial entity, state or federal government, the Department of Defense, or any U.S. military service branch, nor do these organizations or individuals endorse support sanction encourage verify or agree with any comments opinions or statements made unless explicitly and specifically expressed otherwise. Uh, so he's, what, playing Desert Junkman this weekend? Yeah, something like that. Dropping off PVC pipes. Yeah, I don't know. And a, a, a van seat or a car seat, is that what it was? Pretty exciting road trip. I wonder if he stopped at the, the Big Texan and got the 72-ounce steak for free. Mm. A free 72-ounce steak. Where is that in Texas? Is that that Amarillo place? That's yeah, so it's an Amarillo that you yeah. see signs for for like 1,500 right. miles. <laughs> yep. yep, I drove through Amarillo once and I totally remember that. <laughs> but the steak's only free if you finish the you know five and a half pound steak and this like baked potato and a milkshake and like two loaves of bread i know exactly i know exactly the person that should go clearly our president should you know show his texas love and go to amarillo and show us how to eat i think he only eats trump brand steaks yeah and eating five and a half pounds of well-done steak is i mean that's that's impossible I don't care who you well are. Done. No fucking yes. Trump only eats well done steaks with yeah. ketchup on it or whatever. Uh, Wasn't that a big thing that people were freaking out about? Yeah, yeah. Last year, because that's the thing that matters. Yeah, and so and then all the chuds were like burning the shit out of their steaks and be like, "Yeah, I like my steak well done too, huh? Suck it, libs." All right, <laughs> all right, guy. <laughs> I remember. I remember that. It's like the guys that roll cold. It's like, watch, oh, I'm going to destroy my car totally like six years prematurely and eliminate any value it might have. But I, I fucking made that Prius driver so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to trash a $30,000 pickup truck. Ugh, if only. If only they fucking exploded. It, well, it is. I mean, it's extremely bad for the oh yeah for the engine because you're running you're running it what super rich to get all that all that yep. black exhaust all that particulate yeah yeah and you blast blast through your particulate filter and uh, most modern diesels have ex- uh, exhaust gas recovery systems that you know basically parcel out the emissions over time yeah That's, that'll get clogged up meh meh mm-hmm. if, if you're dumb enough to roll coal I figure you've got you got other things going on in your life. But. Yeah. So, John, if you could be any kind of autonomous vehicle, what kind of autonomous vehicle would you be? <laughs> um, uh, well, I would be a train, obviously. Uh, <laughs> and if I could get a, a, my face on the front of the train, that would also be outstanding. <laughs> <laughs> like John the Tank Engine. Yes. yes. No, but I don't want to be a tank engine. I want to have a tender, all right? I don't want, I don't want my coal and water on the same vehicle. I want a tender that I tow behind me that carries the coal and water. So oh, okay, no, I'm not a tank engine. I'm a, I'll be a, a traditional steam engine. Thank you very much. What's your face going to look like on it though? Like what? Uh, it's going to look super face? creepy and fucked up. Like the Thomas. <laughs> the Thomas. Like, yeah, like, 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 like someone like shrunk down an actual human face into this like bizarre animatronic face. That's what I want to do. Frightening. 
Jackie, what kind of autonomous vehicle would you be? Well, I don't know how to follow that up, but I really have this submarine idea going on. So I want something that's going to take me down to the Mariana Trench and I want to go all finding Nemo and like look at, but I don't have a name for it. So that's what I want. I want a submarine. Yeah, there is. What's the, is it the Argo is our, is a remote controlled sub. So I guess it would be some evolution of, of the Argo. You're, mm-hmm. you're, that's, that's not a, it's not a far, not a far fetched not a far-fetched thing. So I would be, I don't think they exist yet, but I would be an autonomous fire truck because that, oh, cool. be, that would be pretty cool just like driving up to places and just shooting water all over burning buildings or, <laughs> or, or, maybe, or maybe protesters. Um, <laughs> How would the system differentiate between fires and protesters though? It doesn't. <laughs> It just, it's, it's just, a very, it's a very unsophisticated AI. <laughs> it's it's programmed for both. <laughs> yes. I just had, you know, I think I just really want to watch Finding Nemo, which is why I want a submarine. So I had like a benevolent miss, you know, mission yeah. with my. <laughs> that sounds fair. So yeah. we we're on this topic. So this is welcome to the uninformed voters. Brad is away playing Desert Junk Man this weekend, and so it is me, Steve, hosting with. John and Jackie. Hello. Hello. And so we are talking about autonomous vehicles because uh, Uber and Waymo, Waymo is the, uh, the self-driving car division of Google, uh, just settled uh, out of court in a very, very surprising fashion. This was not something that I think anyone expected. Uh, they'd sort of been going back and forth for at least a year now, they've been in court over uh, over intellectual property or industrial sabotage, something like that. Uh, and there's, there was a very, very surprise, fast cash settlement outside of uh, out out of court, which um, leads most people to think that um, you know Uber is going to probably have autonomous rideshare vehicles much sooner than than people expected. Uh, and so this is of interest to me because I actually. Um, dabbled in the art of rideshare driving for about a, a, a month here, sort of out of boredom. And, and after we got to LA and it was a good way to sort of, you know, get to know the streets and things like that. Um, and John, you are a, a pretty frequent rideshare passenger. Is yes. that, that's fair to say. And, and I have to say that John is more or less the ideal rideshare passenger. His toes are on the curb when you pull up and he's, quiet and plays with his phone and uh and he always tips and um so if you don't do those things and you're a rideshare passenger you should start doing them now um so my experience driving for a rideshare company was um it was interesting in that it got me out of the house and I got to meet some people and that was all well and good and I got to sort of know you know the some of the major arteries of of South LA and and the peninsula and the beach cities so that was all very interesting um but it became very quickly apparent to me, as I would think it would to anyone who could do even elementary math, um, that this is not a winning proposition for drivers at all. Um, so right now in the city of LA, there's basically a price war going on between Uber and Lyft. And uh, the drivers absolutely suffer as a result of that. Um, the minimum fare for a trip, which could be like a, could be a two mile trip, sort of doesn't doesn't count the miles you drove to get to the, the passenger. Um, but the minimum payout now, right now, is something like $2.60. So you could get a ping on your, you know, you could be driving around for, <clears throat> for Lyft or Uber, and you could get a, a ping to go pick a passenger up. And that, that call could be like seven or eight minutes away. 
And you might get there and they might be going like two blocks and you'll get like two and a half dollars for that. Um, they're also, they've been pushing, uh, both companies have been pushing like pool rides. On, on Lyft, they're called line rides, but it's, uh, it's even cheaper for the passenger, usually something close to 50% of fare. Uh, and the driver picks up uh, as many as their car might, you know, they might, they might have to pick up as many people as their car could handle. So now you're almost um, really duplicating a, a public transit model. And uh, it's cheaper for passengers, but it's double or triple or quadruple the work for the driver, right? It's that many more stop and goes and, and that many more, um, you know, routes that you can't optimize because you have to go out of the way to get a second passenger or a third passenger. Um, and, uh, so it's, it's double, triple, or even quadruple the work for the driver at, at, at lesser rates, basically. Um, and so what I noticed is that they are both very, very heavily recruiting all the time, uh, here in LA. Uh, and it's basically because they figured out, well, if we just flood the market with drivers, then we can just pay really crappy rates because there'll always be somebody else to come take the, the, you know, to take over driving. Um, Lyft had 96% driver turnover last year. Holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that's like, that's like multi-level marketing numbers. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, so I've done a little bit of back of the envelope math. Um, there are, so there, I will say that there are guys out there that are working it and they're making money and they know the tricks, they know the honey pots, they know when, you know, what time to get on the road where and, and, and when to turn the app off. And they probably do okay. Um, but if you're not a min-maxer or you don't know the city that well, um, you know, you can, have, you can have days where you make 15 or 20 bucks an hour before uh, any of your expenses. But that's sort of the key part of it. You know, you get this, you know, the, the app is like, hey, look at all the money that you made. And, and you get kind of excited. And what you kind of don't realize right away is that this is really just a very inefficient way to extract the value from your vehicle, right? Like if you need the money badly enough to be rideshare driving, you really should just sell the car and get a cheaper car and, and, and use that money for, for whatever to cover the rent or whatever it was that you needed. Right. Uh, Cause I've seen a lot of people that have, have done the whole, like they, they'll, they'll finance a Tesla and then they pay for it with Uber. Or oh yeah. It seems like oh, yeah. such a stupid fucking thing to do. Like you might as well just, you could get basically any other job. And the companies encourage that, John, the companies Lyft encourages that they have programs with Hertz and other rental agencies where it's like, Hey, you can rent a car at a discounted rate. You know, you have to do this many rides to sort of pay back the note, but then, you know, uh, any rides above and beyond that, you put it right in your pocket and you can drive the car on your, on your, on your own free time too. And so like, they are absolutely actively encouraging people to get trapped in what is ultimately less than a minimum wage job. Like you are actually better off going and working at Del Taco than you are driving for a rideshare company, right? Because you have to go get a business license from the city of Los Angeles. You have to do all your own taxes and all your own bookkeeping. You have to keep track of every ride, every tank you filled up, every fare you received, every tip you received. You have to track all of that. So you have all these offline hours that cut into your wage where you're doing all of your, your bookkeeping and all this. Um, and you have, you know, the, the wear and tear on the vehicle and John is, I'm sure, you know, driving in the city of Los Angeles, those are some of the hardest miles you can put on your vehicle, right? Well, yeah. And especially the stop and go nature of driving just as a taxi is just punishing for most vehicles. They're not designed to, for right. that kind of 
And, and, and I mean, isn't it too, that you put, end up putting a whole shitload more miles on your car and, and basically in LA, especially there's no such thing as highway miles. It's right. You're, 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 you're driving through a parking lot or you're stop and go with traffic lights. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, so I figured with the gas of, with the price of gas in LA now approaching, I don't know, probably almost 350 at this point. Um, the, the actual, the actual take home for a Lyft or Uber driver is probably somewhere in the neighborhood of like eight fifty an hour, you know, or, or 52 cents a mile, whatever, whichever you prefer. That's about what, what the payout is. Um, and it's absurd because the upfront pay is such a trap um, that people don't realize, <clears throat> wow, now I need a $2,000 repair on my vehicle and Uber and Lyft have been paying me peanuts and, and I, you know, I can't get my car fixed and I can't get back on the road and I can't make any money. Um, so it's interesting. So if you're a rideshare passenger, tip your driver because they're not getting anywhere near close to what you're seeing uh, for your fare. Um, but more than that, really, if you, if you, if you, ha if you can afford the money, I mean, if you have the money to be able to take uh, a, a car service somewhere, just call a cab. Um, I, I don't, I, I could never in good conscience recommend to somebody that they drive for, uh, a rideshare company. Uh, and it was interesting because I, I, you know, it was, it was amazing how much I didn't know going into it and realizing, you know, how quickly, you know, I'm, I'm lucky because I don't need it. Right. Like I was more like doing it to sort of just get out of the house and not be bored in the morning. Um, but I could well, see not how everyone has a sugar mama. Right. Like that's you. exactly right. Nobody, not everyone's got a sugar mama like oh, I do. Please. <laughs> <laughs> so I can see how if somebody needed the cash and couldn't find another job, um, would be really tempted to do this. And I have seen some crazy stuff too. I have seen, I've seen Dodge 1500 pickups out there with Lyft and Uber stickers on them. And I'm like, my God, man, how does that? I don't know. How does that make How does that, how is that like not negative money for every mile you roll that vehicle? I don't understand. It seems like sharecropping, but with cars. Yes, actually, that's a, I think that's a very good analogy. Do you want to, for, for, for the audience, if anyone doesn't know what sharecropping is, Jackie, do you want to explain briefly? Yeah, really briefly. During the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, it was sort of a way to perpetuate slavery. So sharecropping means a share of one's crop. So if you know what feudalism is, former slaves were farming on plantation land and they would get a little tiny piece of land. And in order to keep that land, they had to return a certain crop yield, but they were in perpetual debt most of the time. And they also had to borrow things like tools and livestock. So it almost, you know, it, it essentially restricted all freedom of movement in the Jim Crow South. Not all, but you get what I mean. That sounds, that sounds about right. Now add in if a, uh, if a really clever algorithm could find ways to manipulate you into driving places that you wouldn't normally for less money than you would if you were analyzing it carefully. Um, yeah, so that's the other thing. These, both of these companies, the driver apps have like these heat maps that show you where demand supposedly is and, and show you uh, how much they'll, what kind of bonus they'll pay you if you pick up rides there. Uh, and they also do like quest type bonuses where like if you take X number of rides during these periods of time and maintain a certain acceptance rate, um, you get extra money. Uh, but when you start to look around, there are so too many reports for it to be coincidental, right? 
of guys who would get within like four rides on a Sunday night of hitting like their bonus and then like their pings just dry up or they get like one long ride out into the middle of the nowhere where they're like, they're guaranteed not to get any pings for the ride back. Um, and, and there's just, there's just too many reports of, um, Oh, another really scummy thing they love to do is they'll give, um, scheduled rides. They'll give to multiple drivers at once. And like, basically it's whoever's there first is the one that gets it. And so, you might be like rearranging your schedule in the morning to make a scheduled pickup for a customer. And meanwhile, like Lyft sent two other cars at the same time. And so, well, if they happen to beat you there, um, you know, you might just get canceled on. Um, yeah, there's, so there's, I can't possibly imagine that this industry is long for the world as it stands. I mean, I have to imagine that at some point, um, well, I, so I can say this, actually. I know there have been cities and states that have actually done a pretty good job of regulating them. Like, there's, if you were driving for Lyft or Uber in Boston or New York, where there's really strong taxi presence that, that, that fight really hard for, um, you know, maintaining pay standards and driver standards, you can actually make, I, I've seen Boston drivers make reasonable enough money that I would get in the car and do it if I lived in Boston. Um, but, you know, L.A., so, yeah, and, and isn't it even worse? Even it's more like sharecropping too, because I've seen companies advertising where the the people own the cars. Like some guy just goes out and buys ten cars, and then has a bunch of people driving for Uber or Lyft or whatever in those cars, and then they pay him yes. out of their their fares basically because they don't own the car. Yes, they don't own their means of production. Yes, but, there's these, there's but, these little but, sweatshop but this, models popping up. Yes, exactly. This guy is extracting surplus value from their labor. Yep. Mm, what is that? Huh. That's, that's I know. Familiar. What is that? Yeah, that sounds like? very similar. So, and and it's it's scam at the highest level too, right? Because but neither Uber nor Lyft have made a penny, right? I mean, they they just basically spend this like bottomless well of investor money. Yeah. And yep. and as far as I know, they don't actually make turn turn a profit or anything. I, I do not believe that they are that they are profitable, which means the likelihood of drivers getting paid more at this point is is non-existent. I think that, quite frankly, probably investors in both companies are uh, are happy to fund what is sort of this very public knife fight now between these two companies. Like, there's, I, I don't think that I don't think that there will be pressure on either one to show profitability until the other is dead, basically. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what they're counting on, right? Is for essentially for the forces to monopolize, and then they're given like contracts by from cities to basically operate yeah. <laughs> yeah. automated taxi services. I, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, um, and they're also counting. I mean, I, Uber is certainly counting on autonomous vehicles. They're certainly counting on uh, on rolling out auto cars as as soon as they possibly can. Um, which to me, I mean, I, it makes me laugh because like, John, think about like, I don't know, think about like an autonomous vehicle trying to park for pickup or drop off on like the Santa Monica promenade, like, and like uh, how many cars a day are going to just be, get stuck in endless loops, just like circling the same two blocks <laughs> because every curb is red and every parking meter is like 12 minutes only. And <laughs> well, that, and that's even if you can find a place to park. Yeah. Yeah. They'd have to rearrange roads in order to accommodate Ubers or Lyfts. Right, which sort of brings up brings to like an, an interesting connection, you know, in the taxi industry, like 
there are so in 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 the beach cities there there are taxi stands right where there's you know there's a there's a designated stretch of curb for taxis to pull up and and pick up and drop off on well a taxi company has to pay something on the order of like 600 to 1000 dollars a month to maintain access to that segment of curb so it would it would seem to me that if you're a smart little beach city you're going to you're going to tax you know, Lyft and Uber at least that much to have access to those, those curb segments. Right. Uh, and, and the taxi guys are going to fight to keep it exclusive to them so that that can make it even more expensive. Right. Well, at least here, uh, in Seattle, basically every Uber or Lyft, uh, at places like that, like the airport, for example, has their own designated like taxi stand. Um, all of the people who drive for Uber now, they just took their cabs and took the taxi plates off of it. And it's, exa- I mean, it's just, it's the same exact um, like people and cars that were driving for taxis and now they're driving for Uber. So, I mean, it, it literally just changed wh- whose name is on the side of the cab. And also that, you know, they're not really regulated that, that strictly, although Seattle's tried to get some things going and I think they actually are attempting to unionize too, which would be pretty sweet. Um, but I mean, if, if it if a if a region unionized with Uber, I mean that would be the end of it, right? I mean they would just shut it down. Yeah, I think so. I think so too. Because I don't see how the model if you're if you're Uber, I don't see how you keep running that model with a with a, a unionized driver fleet that you know. But the problem is there's so many, like you said, there are there are um, you know now these little sort of mini sweatshop driver models popping up where a guy will own ten or twenty cars or something like that, and like. The drivers that he works for, that or the drivers that work for him, aren't. They're not going and looking on UberPeople.net to read about how Uber is, you know, is scamming them. That's a plug for an actual blog, by the way. That was where I learned that I was getting ripped off big time. UberPeople.net. Um, so yeah, they're 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 not. There's enough drivers out there that are basically content enough where it's like, all right, I don't. What? Fine, eight bucks an hour, whatever. You know, it, it beats eating mud. Um, that I don't know, I don't know how you get everybody, I don't know how you get everybody unionized. I don't know how you get every Uber driver to unionize. There's, there's no like common dispatch hall where they're all hanging out at night. I, I don't know. Especially with a turnover rate like that. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, it's, it's interesting. I found the whole thing very interesting. I met some nice people. I didn't get tipped very much. Um, which sort of didn't surprise me because part of the part of the pitch is sort of that the or the 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 it's implied sort of that the tip is included maybe a little bit if you're a writer or at least they used to just straight up say that that yeah. like the Uber used to tell you not to tip drivers. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it shakes out. It's certainly not done changing, um, and if they do turn into a completely autonomous fleet. Well, I, I think it'll just make it that much easier to seize and nationalize, right? That'll be a wonderful thing for, yes. for, the, for the state eventually. For us, right. to, for you us. just find the data center or wherever that's all run out of and just surround it with, you know, the military, the, the people's revolutionary force. And yeah, there you go. Now, now you, ha- now you have nationalized transportation. Yep. Uh, speaking of nationalized transportation, uh, John, we name dropped John in the last show talking about talking about uh, Juche powered and train engines in, in North Korea. And John, 
decided to, to find out a little bit about trains in North Korea. So tell us what you found. I, I, when I heard that, I got so excited <laughs> that I immediately started looking up uh, <laughs> the North Korean state railway system. And as I was reading it, um, it, it actually is one of those things that's much more interesting than just the rolling stock and the type of locomotives they have, although that is incredibly interesting. Um, it, it actually sort of tracks the history of North Korea as a country, um, sort of the evolution of their railway starting pretty much right after World War II, after the Japanese occupation ended and the country was divided on the 38th parallel to through the Korean War, through after the Korean War and rebuilding and uh, various famines and stuff. I mean, that it, it almost directly correlates and tracks to the material conditions and political conditions in North Korea. And so it kind of all starts in 1945 with the Japanese occupation of Korea coming to an end. And at this point, they had something like 500 locomotives. Um, they had mostly... Um, tender-based steam locomotives, but they also had some tank engines, which means that the water and coal or oil is all on one vehicle versus having like a trailer that it tows. Um, and then they had some very, very few sections of railway that were electrified. So they had like 10 electric locomotives, something like that. Um, but kind of all of that sort of came to a crashing halt when the division of Korea into the Soviet and American zones on the 38th parallel, that was one of the uh, fallouts of, uh, of dividing up uh, the empire of Japan's uh, former conquered territories. And so um, pretty, pretty rapidly after that, um, what was now the, uh, it wasn't the DPRK yet. It was like the, Provincial People's Committee for North Korea. Um, they, they nationalized all the railways in the Soviet occupation zone, which you would expect considering yeah. that they were communists. Um, and they kicked out all the Japanese. So, all right, still go around, we're, on a, we're on a good, good path here. Uh, they, then they started massively electrifying their entire railway. Uh, their goal was basically to get rid of all of their steam locomotives because they were so ridiculously old um, I mean, you were talking about steam locomotives from the 19th century. Wow. Uh, in incredibly old. I mean, just just very outdated uh, when you consider this is 1947 or 48 now. Uh, so, so rapid rapidly started electrifying their their railway and uh, using mm, like leftover Japanese thing uh, locomotives, but also uh, they imported tons and tons of locomotives and rolling stock from other members of the, you know, the world socialist bloc, like the Soviet Union, China, Poland, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, um, all the, all, all those countries had large, uh, rail industries and they built locomotives, they built rolling stock, they built all the stuff that you would need. Uh, and so it was kind of looking good as far as trains were concerned in, uh, in, in North Korea. Oh, and uh, then the Korean War happened. And um, a lot of people in the United States don't really know a whole lot about the Korean War. It's, I mean, we call it the Forgotten War uh, because it's somewhat overshadowed by uh, World War II and then just the absolute catastrophe of Vietnam. But yeah. uh, I mean, Korea was in every way that Vietnam was a, a massive war crime <laughs> and, <Sure>. and yeah. <laughs> just um, 
even more so than than Vietnam, um, you could make a very good case that the Korean War was actually an attempted genocide of the North Korean people. I mean, something like 20%. Curtis LeMay bragged about killing 20% of their yeah. population. Uh, I mean, there there were Pyongyang wasn't like this massive city, but it was uh, you know it was it, it was getting there. It, it was it suffered under colonialism like a lot of countries did, um, but it was a fairly large city. Um, after the Korean War, uh, Pyongyang was like two bricks stacked on top of each other, and that was it. Jesus. Uh, the entire city was leveled, as were virtually every city in North Korea, uh, was just completely leveled. And along with that, all the all the rail lines were sure. leveled. Like, they destroyed every single. I mean, literally, they saturated the entire country with bombs. They dropped 620,000 tons of bombs on North Korea, which is more than we dropped in the entire Pacific campaign in World War II. Uh, wow. And North Korea, if you look on a map, it's like the size of New Jersey. It's not very big. Um, I mean, yeah, it, it, kind of, it kind of became like the, the test ground for every like, evil toy that we came up with in, in, in the post-World War II era. Yep, napalm. Napalm found itself uh, very frequently used. Shitloads of napalm. Uh, they used uh, one. One of the um, arguments for the genocide is that we blew. We used our dam buster bombs and blew up dams and shit, not because they were de- developing. You know, they're used being used for power, but because they were keeping rice paddies flooded to proper levels. And so we blew up these dams, and all the rice would die and, or flood. And uh, whoops, uh, you know, like a couple million people starved to death. Whoops, no big deal, right? Um, so the Korean War ends, sort of, uh, with the armistice. And immediately, the, uh, you know, one of the, one of the tenets of Juche is self-reliance. And the irony here is that, unfortunately, the entirety of North Korea was just completely leveled. So self-reliance was not something that was possible. So the DPRK government... Um, took in a massive amount of aid from basically every communist bloc country on the planet. Um, like billions of rubles worth of uh, aid. Uh, it looks like, yeah, just, just under a billion rubles just in uh, 1953. Wow. So most of that uh, actually was for building supplies and rail and locomotives. And because... The, their primary partner for rebuilding their railway was uh, the German, East German, East Germany, the uh, German Democratic Republic, GDR, is that what it was? Something like that. Yeah. Um, a lot of their um, locomotives and rolling stock now were uh, East German. So they had um, some, some pretty cool uh, electric locomotives. Uh, they kind of called this sort of era... Uh, the the rebuilding era, except it was that it's in Korean, not in English. Um, and during this time is when they electrified most of their railways, and this was important because then they were able to use like standard order Russian and Czech electric locomotives that were being built by the tens of thousands. Um, so so they were able to import a lot of these um, Warsaw Pact ish. Um, Rail locomotives, and, and this actually tracked very nicely with sort of through the 50s and 60s and well into the 70s, North Korea actually was kind of booming in terms of being rebuilt and kind of regaining its uh, economic prowess. Uh, you know, it, it had surpassed its colonial um, GDP or whatever, something like 1959, despite the fact that the entire country was destroyed like five years before that. So... 
um, pretty, pretty rapid advances. Um, then, you know, a bunch of famines happened. Kim Il-sung died and then no longer could the trains run on Juche. Um, in something like three years, basically the entire country just sort of languished. Um, and it also coincidentally happened to fall right at the sort of collapse of communism in Eastern Europe, uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union, and basically dried up all of the aid that um, was coming into North Korea. And so now they're stuck with these, you know, 20, 30, 40 year old trains that are, they have no way of getting parts for, they can't replace because they have no money, they have no food, people are dying, it really sucks. So they ended up with these just, <laughs> dire looking trains and I, like i found this picture of uh of this diesel locomotive and like it, it, this thing was so in such in such disrepair it can only tow two cars uh, <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> and uh so i mean that's kind of where they were um and and, and there's an interesting parallel though because the same sort of thing ha- kind of happened in cuba although despite not openly advertising a policy of juche the castros sort of saw the writing on the wall and realized that they were going to have to become self-reliant because political instability in the Soviet Union was sort of obvious to anyone paying attention in the 80s. Um, So Cuba didn't really have the same issue that North Korea had. But uh, nowadays, though, it's, uh, you know, I mean, no, no, it's, 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 it's very, uh, it's obviously hard to get information out of North Korea. But uh, so, so the, uh, the Korean state railway, again, it's all completely nationalized. There's only one company. Um, They've got, a decent mix of of diesel and electric locomotives, um, mostly um, from uh, Czechoslovakia, like I said, um, and also they have a lot of like local um, reverse engineered um, copies, basically of of Russian or Chinese designs. That's cool. And then, uh, yeah, they're still running some steam locomotives on some on some uh, on some lines because. There are like in the mountainous regions, actually, I guess there's some advantage to using steam locomotives. I don't know. I, I couldn't, I, I was trying to think about the physics of it, but there's, there's some reason, there's some advantage, the uh, like tractive force of a steam locomotive in huh. high altitude is better than the 50 year old like diesel trains that um, would, would have had to go there anyways, because they didn't electrify that, that part of, or it had been electrified and then destroyed. Um, That's interesting. So I wonder if, um, huh? So altitude gives you a lower, air, a lower surrounding air pressure. So maybe you're you're getting a little free push from when you're when when the when the. Um, well, I don't know. That's interesting. Well, well I think it's I think it because in a diesel um, a diesel electric locomotive, it it need it has a. Uh, like a t- usually they have two stroke engines, which means that um, on the compression stroke, it compresses against the force of a supercharger. So if the air is very, very thin, um, the supercharger right. can't develop enough pressure to sure. properly compress the pistons, then you lose a whole lot of power. And I mean, I'm, modern, modern trains get around this in a whole bunch of other sure. other ways. But, uh, you know, if you're talking about diesels that were built, you know, in 1970, 1965, um, don't yeah they, they and and also put on the fact that they're forty years old and so they have forty years of wear and uh, my yeah. problems yeah so I yeah. did a 
I did a Google image search of these trains because I was curious and they remind me of the Metro North trains from <laughs> line that like weren't replaced until when 2010 or something and something like that ones were horrifying and the people the riders ruined them in like a year anyway so, so i wonder um so i thought i think that's interesting that um that they have that they have an advantage in the, the mountainous regions in the north because i was actually curious about that because you know you think about it we have uh, you know, here domestically, we have regions that are well serviced by rail that have very similar, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, the, the coal country of West Virginia. I mean, that's, you know, the, 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 the railway was sort of the, the lifeline for most of those communities, as well as being the, you know, the major, you know, that was how you got, get coal, even in Wyoming today, that's how you get coal out of Wyoming is by train, right? Yeah. Yep. So yeah, it's, it's too bad that we feel like this little country on the other side of the world has to be our mortal enemy because I don't know, we could probably share interesting things and learn from each other. But well, and in the course of doing this research and, and reading about the Korean war, it's like, you know, we often forget that, you know, maybe they have a fairly good reason to not be very big fans of the United States. Right. Yeah. Um, they, they, they're probably right. Uh, in, in, in terms of being mad at us and thinking that we're an evil empire because we pretty much death starred their country. Right. The, the um, mural, the murals, <laughs> the murals of the murderous American GIs that are all over Pyongyang are maybe not as hyperbolic as we would think that they are. Right. Well, it was, so I don't, I don't know so much about the ground forces, but definitely the United States Air Force um, just indiscriminately bombed everything. Yeah. Um, and, and, and of course, it was run by an absolute psychopath, Curtis LeMay, um, who, if, if he got his way, we would have fucking nuked them. So, I mean, at least, at least we didn't nuke them, right? Yeah. Uh, I guess we can thank, thank uh, Truman for that one. But uh, it was still pretty... Uh, Pretty, pretty ridiculous. Gruesome. Yeah, yeah pr pretty gruesome. And just uh, the, the difference is that here in the United States, it's the Forgotten War, whereas in North Korea, they are like taught about it from age five, about how the United States destroyed their entire country. And sure. uh, yeah, I can see why they might be bitter about it. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, think, that's, I think that's reasonable. And it doesn't excuse the, the legitimately bad things that the Kim family has done over the many decades. Nope. And um their bombastic um, foreign policy these days. Um, but, you know, take, take a step back. They're people too. Yep. I, can see why, I can see why they'd be mad. Yeah, the, the arc of history is a long one. And we're still at war with them, so I don't know, mate. who knows? That's true. Uh, I'm glad you mentioned Cuba. I, wanna, I made a note because I, we're, we're long overdue for a, for a segment on Cuba on this show, I think. I think that'd be really interesting. That's a good idea. Yeah. Um, so I don't know that we have a super graceful segue to this other than that we've been talking about infrastructure sort of, uh, throughout, it's sort of been an, a, a theme of the show without even really realizing it. Um, but so there's some other, um, infrastructure sort of related news, uh, abroad. Um, South Africa is under serious, serious drought conditions. I don't even know if, if the words drought conditions even really apply to the magnitude of this this problem anymore they're they're due to run out of water like period like this year 
like like there there just won't be any water uh and jackie was kind enough to look into this and uh and and put some notes together on it so yeah tell us jackie how how did how does a how does a country run out of water where did they used to get their water from and where did it go so south africa has a very complex climate as it is and it's cape town acutely that's experiencing uh the most Im- immediate water crisis but uh at this moment, and I'm, I'm, I don't have a strong science background, so some of this is research, but the country has been overly dependent on surface water for a really long time instead of groundwater. And their reservoirs right now are uh, at a, they're at like 23% and they're falling. And at this point, people in South Africa are referring to a day zero, which would be the day when they would actually just shut the water off completely. And I want to talk about how much uh, water they're restricted to in, in uh, just a minute, but day zero, uh, it could be as early as April 12th of this year, which is what, two and a half months away. So yeah. that's yeah. really soon. Uh, you know, other things about South Africa, um, you know, it, it mainly, at least in the uh, area surrounding Cape Town, it's mainly desert or steppe. Uh, and then outside of that is uh, chiefly agri- agriculture, and it's heavily based on irrigation. And the population of South Africa is, is quite high uh, if you consider how large the state is. Uh, it's 55 million people, and it's a very young country. The median age is something like 20. So, you know, they have this overwhelming burden uh, for just water because of this escalating population. Um, and its rainfall is is uh, very low compared to uh, most surrounding countries. And 2015 was the lowest year on record, and it was like staggeringly low. So uh, another problem is the way that they actually utilize their water. Um, so a lot of municipal water is actually lost just due to leakage. Uh, a lot of uh, commercial losses that accounts for about 35% of the available water supply just goes away just due to leakage. Um, and a lot of that is because of a really high reliance on coal-fired power plants. Um, and uh, again, I mentioned agriculture before. Uh, the industry itself also is really important. Uh, 8.5 million South Africans work in that industry, and they depend on it for employment. So if agriculture fails, not to mention the famines that would occur, it would put that many more people out of work. Um, and uh, there's also, we have to consider inequalities in water consumption. Uh, you know, apartheid officially ended in 1994, uh, but you still see some really staggering, not only socioeconomic inequality in South Africa, but that also occurs often on race, racial lines. Uh, and in the past, there were really lax water consumption regulations in the country as a whole. Uh, and this led to some citizens deliberately avoiding obeying any restrictions, especially these new ones. It was like uh, as recently as January, only uh, 38% of South Africans were actually abiding by the water restrictions at all. And there were some high income neighborhoods that were violating them so egregiously that the state had to install water management devices on their properties. Um, so you know, it's, it's just, it's just a total mess. And, you know, I looked up some census data, census data to just prove the, the racial divide. Um, as of the 2016 census, uh, only 48 and a half percent of black South Africans had flush toilets uh, that were connected to a sewage system in their house. 
And by contrast, 99.1 of white South Africans do wow. have that. Wow. So yeah, and it's 2018. So I mean, two years later, but still it's, it's crazy. And we just kind of ignore it. And, and I don't know if you guys want to know what the water restrictions actually are, because I have information on that too. And that's kind of staggering. You know, like basically what they're doing is limiting consumption to what studies have said is the bare minimum required for survival. Um, and so as of, uh, as of February 1st, the restrictions are 50 liters a day per person, which is about 13 gallons of water. And so, uh, and that accounts for, if you're curious, like how the studies revealed that's what survival is, they say three liters just to drink, right, which is not very much, uh, 20 liters for sanitation, like flushing your toilet, bathing, stuff like that, 15 liters uh, per day, actually rather 15 minutes per day for bathing, sorry, 20 liters is separate, but that's also laundry and stuff. And that's uh, one minute showers are the limit. And also 10 liters per day for cooking and cleaning dishes. So I don't know how anyone does that. And, and quite frankly, now, every time I'm like in the shower, you know, just taking one extra second, I like feel guilty. I'm like, oh my God. So can you, buy, can you, buy, can you, no, that's okay. So can you, um, can you give us a comparison? Like what's the average American consuming in, in water? Every uh, by comparison. So this, I looked at a few studies and they had a lot, they had a very wide range I've read, I read one place between 80 and 100 gallons a day. By the way, I was talking to liters for South Africa, but uh, 50 liters a day is 13 gallons again. So uh, my American studies were in gallons, right? So the average American uses something more like 80 gallons a day to 100 gallons a day. Wow. Yeah, I took a 30 minute shower today. So yeah, yeah. And, and most days. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just get in there and I zone out. I don't know. I just Yeah, and we're in Southern California and so our you know, it seems like we have abundant water, but it's totally artificial. So it's just so strange. Um I thought that was so I, that was very interesting to me. I I one of the questions that I had was was if if water access bro- broke down along along racial lines and and you went right to the heart of that, which is good. Um you know, it's important I think you know for us and for the audience to remember that it's only, you know, that what are we talking about? Maybe 35 years, 40 years of, of, uh, desegregation in South Africa, less than that. What, what, how long are we talking, Jackie? Well, uh, the first free election was in 1994. So 20, not quite 25 years. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, still in Pretoria, there are statues of the former prime minister PW Bota who tried to keep uh, apartheid in place. So there's even a white nationalist movement in South Africa right now. Of course. So economically and materially, there basically still is apartheid, right? There's mass disenfranchisement, both politically and economically, in terms of the difference between black and white South Africans. So, I mean, it ended kind of in name only. Oh, absolutely. There still is de facto apartheid. so you mentioned sort of some very, you know, some very unique sort of uh, climatic problems. Um, what are they? I mean, I'm sure there's not a lot of good solutions, right? Because we're already talking about a, a, a country that is um, behind the curve in terms of industri- other industrial nations and, and probably doesn't have cash on hand for, um, you know, massive infrastructure projects and probably isn't eager to get 
massively in debt with the World Bank to pull it off either. Um, so what are their what are their options at this point? What are their you know obviously rationing is not gonna you know rationing and praying for rain isn't gonna cut it. So what are they? Do they have any you know sort of large scale projects that they can do to solve this? You know, I actually didn't. I feel like such a Debbie Downer. I didn't look too much into, uh, you know, uh, projections aside from just NGO involvement. Uh, you know, a lot of the studies I was reading were from the World Wildlife Fund, for example. You know, they're they're also doing a lot of intensive studies on how this water short. I mean, not really even water shortage, water scarcity. I, I don't know exactly what to call it, but how that also is going to affect uh, the the surrounding ecosystems and just uh, you know the extent to which climate change is intertwined with this as well. I can't really speak to that. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, foreign aid, uh, humanitarian aid, uh, you know, I, I don't know if, I mean, ultimately, it's not sustainable. If they reach the uh, day zero that I mentioned before, then the water restrictions will be cut in half again. Okay. And that means that every South African, at least legally, is only allowed to have half of what is needed for survival, according to studies. So what that's going to result in, of course, is, you know, death, declining agriculture industry. And like I said, 8.5 South Africans depend on agriculture for work, right? Uh, you're going to have foreign divesting as well. So it's going to have a global impact, right? I mean, just like during apartheid, when, uh, when the UN imposed sanctions on South Africa, there were huge foreign investments like Pepsi pulled out, you know, you know it was terrible for the, for the country's economy. And in fact, right now, South Africa's economy is experiencing a, a depression. So, I mean, this couldn't come at a worse time. Um, and there's also a possible refugee crisis, you know, you know. That was, that was my next question. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, and then what happens? Uh, so, you know, uh, that, that's not a really positive picture in terms of, of what can be done. I mean, uh, I think they need to invest in infrastructure uh, that will make more use of of groundwater and, and not be over dependent on surface water. But I don't know if you, you two guys know more about that. Is, is desalinization an option for them? I don't know. That's a good question. It's I mean, expensive. It's, it's, not, it's, it's too expensive for Southern California. So I think it's too expensive. Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, John, that's a really good point. Like it's, it, I, I think it's important to remember that there are many places that are geographically similar to South Africa. we, we happen, you know, Jackie and I happen to live in one, you know, Los Angeles is basically a desert. Las Vegas is a desert, you know, um, Phoenix, Arizona is a desert. And, you know, because we have this abundance of fresh water elsewhere in the country that we're able to, you know, and we have the, um, you know, we have the, the wealth to, to transport it other places. Um, that's the only reason that it's possible for us to live in some of the places that we live in. And, you know, like Jackie was saying, there's what, 35, 55 million residents in the state, the, the South African state. That, that might be the 2016 census data. Fine. But, that'll, know, that'll, right. That's good. Good enough for government work. Uh, you know, what happens when 55 million people suddenly don't have drinking water? You know, well, they're going to, they're going to flee to, you know, right. Mozambique, uh, Botswana, you know, uh, they might just, they might try to, I don't know how that's going to affect all of uh, sub-Saharan Africa, if not all of the entire African continent for that matter. And then how is that going to impact Europe and just the global refugee crisis? I mean, it's just, uh, you know, actually, it, I don't know. 
I, I was going to veer off into, uh, you know, talking about how Africans are being bounced from one place to another, but I don't want to change topics. It's just, it's, it's kind of crazy. And it's also weird, you know, John was mentioning historical legacies with regard to the trains. I'm thinking about how this did happen before in the 1980s, and we really haven't learned much from it because that's when all the, uh, is it divesting or divestments? I don't know what the right word is, but all that happened in the 80s. And that could happen again if we don't watch ourselves. And I mean, think about who's in power right now. You know, it, 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 was, it was similar. Our relationship mm. with Russia arguably was similar too. You know, think about like Reagan's Star Wars missile defense, whatever sure. the hell that was. <laughs> Why sure. did he call it Star Wars? Um, because and it's his crazy. brain operated in, with movie references. Yeah, pew pew. Um, but, you know, it's just, uh, you know, if you just think about continuity when you're studying history and trying to make predictions for what's to come, um, it's like, you know, Steve, I tell you this sometimes, how it's so rewarding when you prove one of your parents wrong. <laughs> yeah. You know, and yeah. my father is, uh, he's brilliant. And he, even though he was a lawyer, uh, he, he's a history aficionado, like to, uh, to like a Rain Man degree. It's almost frightening. Um, I know, and, but he, uh, loves, he loves Churchill. Yeah, oh my God, don't even get me started about how he loves Churchill. But uh, Churchill was a bad dude. Churchill was a bad dude, but that's for another show. No, but oh uh, God, I I lost my I lost my point. That's all right. I was gonna, I was gonna say something about like um you know oh just like proving a point of where we're going to end up right yeah. like uh you know it's just like how I told my dad that Hillary Clinton was gonna lose and he didn't believe me. This shit's gonna happen, you know, with this, and I don't know what's what's gonna go down. It's uh yeah. we have to actually be aware. That's the thing. I feel like all these you know people who. I'm going to sound all diatribe but like people who are, you know, on social media, just like posting pictures of puppies and kittens and have like no idea that this stuff is going on. It does impact us and we should actually learn from our mistakes. And, you know, from an infrastructure development standpoint as well, think like, how can we prevent this in the future? Because water is obviously something we can't, you can't cut that. You can't right. have water restrictions. You can like right. have electricity restrictions, but other things that doesn't work. Water. So it's it's interesting to to bring it all back around again. I one uh, one morning I had a I had a, a Lyft passenger who was going to work, uh, and he worked for he works for the the L.A. Uh, Department of Water, and uh, he's a guy that you know he monitors you know flow in in various locations, which basically means he has to sit you know, at a board with, you know, 50 flow meters or something like that and make sure that, you know, all these junctures have enough water coming through them. Um, but the the topic of water, of course, came up as we were chatting in the car and, you know, some 70 plus percent of LA's water comes from Northern California and, and way, way North, like way all the way up in the Sierras. And there are these gigantic boreholes that they use to, to bring this water, you know, hundreds of miles uh, through all different terrains in, in California just to, to get water uh, down to LA. So, um, you know, we, we think that it, it couldn't happen, but, you know, maybe, maybe it could. What would, what would happen if, if LA couldn't, you know, couldn't get enough fresh water to, to water the lawns in Thousand Oaks and places like that, right? And Beverly Hills and yeah. Rolling Hills, God forbid, with their horses and everything. I know. That would be, that would be a travesty. It would. Womp womp. So well, good uh, thing a bunch of people's lawns burned up uh, last month. So. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know, I was I was watching I was watching the the 
the as the wildfire stuff was unfolding and it was some you know the the one silver lining was that you know like rupert murdoch's house burned down or something like that yes well you know a little good there's a, there's a little good in, in everything, right? He'll be okay, folks. He's got like nine other houses, okay? It's, yeah, I think, exactly. I think he'll be all right. Yeah. Be, he's going to be all right. Alms uh, for the poor. Yes. So what did we learn tonight? Jackie, what did you learn? Oh, geez. I learned a lot about the, the North Korean trains, John. That was fascinating. And now it makes me want to play either Ticket to Ride or whatever <laughs> that train game is that we used to play on our tablets. Which, <laughs> that's what I learned. How about you, John? Um, uh, I learned that, uh, you know, time passes, but, uh, everything happens over and over and over again and no one learns any lessons for anything. So I guess I didn't really learn anything, but neither did humanity for like the last (laughs) 250,000 years. So, uh, I learned, so I, yeah, we had two really informative segments tonight. I learned a lot about, um, I mean, I guess I was not that surprised to find out that, that water access falls very strikingly along racial lines in South Africa. I guess that's, I, I'm disheartened to learn that that is true, but I guess it doesn't surprise me. Um, and I learned cool things about Juche trains and, uh, and now I'm going to go look up the, the, the relative advantages of, of steam engines. In yeah. I, I didn't, I ran out of time. I didn't uh, Sorry. do the, do this, but there is some reason why they, why they still use steam engines. It's not just because they're poor. Awesome. Thanks a lot, guys. And thank you to the audience for listening. Uh, if you liked this show, like us and review us and rate us on, on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud, wherever it is that you listen. Uh, we are on our own web page now. Uh, you can listen to episodes of The Uninformed Voters at tworavens.biz slash TUV. And you can also listen to my brand new podcast, also uh, part of the same family called Save Versus Adulthood. It's a pen and paper RPG podcast where every uh, adventure we are in a new universe with new character sheets and the same sets of players. Uh, that is also on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and our website at tworavens.biz slash SVA for Save Versus Adulthood. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great night. Uninformed Voters intro and outro music is provided and sampled by Attack Squad. To listen to more of their amazing music, please visit them at ahtck.com.